You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. All righty. So last week we talked about how, uh, well, we had murders and we had mourning. We had all kinds of uh, dramatic stabbings and things like that. And we saw David installed as king over Judah, but then we also saw the death of Ish-bosheth, who was Saul's heir apparent. He had been installed by Saul's general. So there were a lot of people who died last week and actually the week before too. And it was funny, we were talking a little on the teaching team. Some people were saying, man, I wish we could have just tacked um, the, the happy part onto the end of last week so that we could have finished with, with David enthroned. But also I think it's a good exercise for us to feel all of that waiting and to feel all of that. This cannot possibly be the way that things are going to resolve because it was sort of this path to David getting on the throne. It was not just a straight shot. And I I think that sometimes we think if we are doing the will of the Lord and seeing the will of the Lord come to pass, shouldn't it be easier than this? And so it's a good opportunity for us to evaluate what our expectations are for how the will of the Lord comes to pass. And the will is, the, the, the Lord has generally been, his voice has been generally silent in the text for a while now until we get to chapters five through seven and then we begin to hear the voice of the Lord again. But we saw last week the tension of whether David would wait on the Lord or whether he would take matters into his own hands. And consistently, he waited on the Lord and he mourned when it was time to mourn and he made alliances when he saw an alliance that he could make. But he acted wisely and he waited on the timing of the Lord and this week the wait is finally over. At the beginning of chapter three, so where we opened up last week, we saw a statement about how the house of David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And what we will see in chapters five through seven is that that theme kind of comes to its close. We see it fully developed and come to its closure. So let's jump in because we have some ground to cover and we have some really important things to talk about this week. Chapter five, starting in verse one. So Ishbosheth is dead. That's where we left things last week. We sent you home with a smile on your face. No, you were probably like, I'm done, man. <laughs> so here we go. Verse one says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. We got there. We got there. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah. 33 years. So now, obviously, it mentions Jerusalem, and we haven't gotten to that part of the story yet. We're going to hear about the siege of Jerusalem. But if you've noticed, this is this opening section is sort of like a collage. It's, it's not necessarily a linear telling. It's a collage, a snapshot of different pictures that are all kind of lined up together to give us a feel for what happens at the beginning of David's reign. But before we start to look at what happens when he actually captures Jerusalem, let's see what the people say to him when they come to him, because they give three 
reasons for validating David's kingship. So he's been king over Judah and now Israel, those who were following Ishbosheth and Abner, now they're coming to him and they are going to pledge allegiance. And the first thing that they say in verse one is, behold, we are your what? Bone and flesh. So what is the first reason that they will accept him as their king? because it's a kinship tie. This is the family and they're, they're reunited. Remember, it's been a civil war and now they're going to come together once again. And then in verse two, what's the next reason that they want to swear allegiance to him for? It says, in times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. What is that a reference to? He's had military success. I mean, most recently you could argue he's had military success over them. Uh, and then in the third reason that's given is at the second part of verse two, it says, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So an acknowledgement by the leaders of Israel that it is the Lord's decree that David would rule over them. Something that had gotten lost in the earlier passages that we were in. So it is his kinship ties, it is his military success, and it is also by divine decree that they recognize him as the rightful king. And so it says that all of the elders come and they anoint him king over Israel. So he was anointed privately way back when, when he was pulled from the field where he was a literal shepherd. And then he was anointed over Judah, and now we finally see him anointed over Israel, and he becomes the shepherd of his people, of God's people Israel, and the prince over Israel. So then he, we find that he reigns for a total of 40 years, and then we find out about the siege of Jerusalem. Were you surprised to know that Jerusalem was still in enemy hands at this point in the story of the nation of Israel. I think that's fascinating. I think we can lose track of that because if you think about the timeline, it was back in the book of Joshua that the conquest of Canaan takes place. But if you know the story of the book of Joshua and of Judges, you know that the Jebusites stood tough in Jerusalem. So even though the surrounding area may have been taken, the Jebusites did not turn over Jerusalem and they have had it as their place for this entire time. In fact, if you looked at Genesis chapter 15, and you don't have to turn there, I will read it to you, but it's, a, it's when God restates his covenant to Abraham about what he is going to give to him. And this is a list that you become familiar with if you spend much time in Genesis and Exodus and in Joshua and Judges. So this is what God says. It says, on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So this he's saying, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, okay? And then he lists its inhabitants. Verse 19 of Genesis 15 says, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, the last name on the list. And the Jebusites tend to show up there right at the end, tagged on to the end. Why? Because they're still in Jerusalem. And so we are meant to have this final exhale. Not only is David on the throne, but now the throne will be established in Jerusalem, the holy city. And not only that, but we're going to learn another name for Jerusalem that has enormous significance throughout the rest of the Bible. It will be the first place that we hear it mentioned. So let's look at verse six. It says, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. 
thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of what? Zion, the first mention of Zion in scripture. And why is it significant to us? Because you'll hear Jerusalem referred to in these terms throughout all the poetry of the Old Testament. You'll hear it mentioned in the prophecies that way. But why does it matter to us? Because there is a new Jerusalem that we will see in the book of Revelation. And when we see in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, you have not come to Mount Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion and to people in festal celebration. And that's gonna be an important image for us in just a little bit when we get further into the text. So they taunt him by saying, hey, the lame and the blind that hang out with us could totally turn you away. That's how easily defendable this city is and how weak we think that you are. Okay, and so that's our first mention of lame and blind. And it says in verse 17, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. So this connection made between the two names. It says, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. And he air quotes it for you. You thought air quotes were new. <laughs> what is he saying? You know what I think of all of the Jebusites? There, and, and I, you know, we live in a time where we're like, why would you say that's not, you know, why would you say that about people with disabilities? What is he saying? He's saying in their day and time, it meant these are the people who are least capable of what? Defending the city, right? So we're talking about a military. This is like when Nahash wanted to poke everybody's eyes out, right? It's saying you, you, you're, you are someone who is not able to defend the city. And that's why this, this terminology is used, but it's used for another reason too. So if you're worried here that the lame and the blind are taking a hit in God's eyes, just stay tuned because we've already had someone introduced into the narrative who is lame and who is it? Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth, that's really hard to say, by the way, <laughs> is going to show up again a few chapters from now and is going to tie together the tension that's being built here in the text about what the lame and the blind can or cannot do in Jerusalem, okay? So hold on to that tension for now. So David basically says, okay, go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. So he's saying all of the Jebusites, in my opinion, are not able to defend this city. Uh, Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Yeah, you know how people say that all the time, right? (laughs) So apparently it turns into this saying, and not only that, but some scholars link this to the first century practice among the Jews of not allowing those with a disability into the temple. But you will remember that when Jesus steps into the temple, what does he do? He performs healings for the lame and the blind. Okay, hang on to all that. So we have this saying that is introduced to us, but it's not really given any explanation. And that's because we're going to see how it plays out with the story of Mephibosheth. Good grief, I don't want to say that name again. Okay, verse 9. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward, and he became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So did you hear it? There's that tie back to what we saw in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter three, verse one spoke of David growing stronger and stronger and the house of Saul becoming weaker and weaker. So we've had mention of the house of David growing stronger and stronger. We should also be looking for where we're seeing the house of Saul in as much as it still exists growing weaker and weaker. So hold on to that idea. Verse 11, 
It says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Man, this week is so much better than last week, isn't it? So we have a building project that it looks like is about to happen. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, you know that guy. Uh, No, you probably don't. So Tyre was a seaport. It was a major port city. And so what does a port city need in order to be able to get its goods to the people who want to buy it? It needs trade routes. And so it makes sense that a powerful king of a port city would want to have positive relations with the king who is establishing a regional presence. And so he sends him these gifts so that he can build him a house. And we'll see why the significance of David living in a house is going to matter for later on in the story. And listen to what David acknowledges. I love that this verse is put in here, verse 12. It says, and David knew. And what does David know? He knows that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom. Why? For the sake of his people, Israel. So to whom does David give the credit for his kingship? The Lord. And for what purpose does he view himself being placed in that position? For the sake of his people, Israel. Listen, too often we are looking for a king like the nations when it comes to who we want running our churches or running our ministries. We think we want the person who is smooth of speech, who is tall, who is attractive. You know, all of the measures that were placed upon Saul to make him an enjoy, a, 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 a candidate and enjoyable. That was weird to make him a desirable candidate for leadership. But what do we see is the most desirable thing we could look for in the one who would shepherd God's people, that he would understand he has been brought to that position because of the Lord's will and for the purpose of bringing about the good of the people of God. No mention in there of David thinking that he had come to power for his own glory. So it's looking good this week. Here we go, verse 13. It says, uh uh-oh, it says, and David, what's the word? Took. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And then we have a listing of the children that are born to him in Jerusalem. So a couple of things to notice here. First of all, anytime we hear that word took, it should make us remember Samuel's all-time famous rant back in 1 Samuel, where he said, you want a king? Let me tell you what a king will do. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your land. He will take your livestock. He will take, and he will take, and he will take. And it is, some commentators find it significant that a formula is reversed here, that typically when you hear this phrasing, you hear took more wives and concubines, but that it's flipped to show that David is not thinking even about who would, who, who would be strategic, that he's just multiplying. Because a concubine is not as valuable as a wife in terms of making allegiances. At least a wife can be a political alliance, but a concubine serves basically one purpose. David took more concubines and wives. So in the midst of this declaration of David understanding who has brought him to this place and who it is that he serves, the narrator wants us to know, don't get too comfortable. 
Don't get too comfortable. Verse 17 says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. Okay, so the Philistines are probably like, uh, we remember that guy because he used to hang out with us. And we thought he was on our side. And now, oh, I see he's united the whole nation. And so whereas when he was just king over Judah, he may not have posed a threat to them. Now they can see that he is a clear and present danger, so to speak. And so it says that they went up to search for him. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go, against, go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So what do we see? We see God speaking to David. We see David seeking the Lord before he goes into battle. So he is presented to us as the anti-Saul in this, in this section. He is seeking the Lord's will. And the valley of Rephaim is a valley that stretches downward and to the west um, toward Philistine territory from Jerusalem. So if you were looking at your map in the back of your book, you would have Jerusalem and then a valley that sort of stretches this way over toward Philistine territory. So they come up into this valley to pose a threat. Verse 20 says, And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of the place is called Baal Perazim, which means the Lord of bursting through. So I hear people sing songs about Jehovah Rapha and Jehovah Shammah, but you don't often hear them singing about the Lord of bursting through. But perhaps you have known him to be exactly that at various times in your life. I can say with certainty that I have. So he breaks through like a flood. The Philistines are defeated. And keep this image in mind because it's going to matter again as we go further. You're like, stop saying that. Just tell me the answers. No, nope, we're going to keep building the tension for a little bit. Verse 21, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Okay, so don't miss this. So the Philistines get totally whooped, and what happens? They, they basically flee the scene, and they leave their idols, and David and his men carry, carry them away. Why is this significant? Because what happened in 1 Samuel 4? The Philistines defeated Israel and carried off what? The ark. And so we're meant to see here a reversal of that defeat. Okay, verse 22 says, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. So do you see what happened here? Listen to what David is doing. Same scenario. They're back in the valley of Rephaim, positioning themselves against him. And instead of David going, Oh, yeah, I remember what happened last time. We'll just go do that again. What does he do? He inquires of the Lord, and the Lord says, do not go up. So he's being very sensitive to the leading of the Lord. The Lord tells him to do something different. He says, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the troops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for, there, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Okay, so I love when the Old Testament does this, where it says, where the Lord is speaking and he doesn't say, hey, do what I say and then I will do X, Y, or Z. What does he say? Because I have done it. Like that's how the Lord tends to speak. It is done. 
All you need to do is step forward in what I've told you to do, and it is done. And then we see that this, this striking them from Geba to Gezer, that is a decisive routing of the Philistines, the likes of which we have not seen in the text thus far. So uh, one of the commentators was saying this would be a military victory equivalent to turning the tide like we saw happen at D-Day. Like it's, it's meant to hit Israel's ears as, wow, that's, that's what David did there? So what are we seeing? We're seeing the house of David growing stronger and stronger. Okay, so then what happens? We get to chapter 6. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and he arose and went with all the people who were with him from, hold on, I cannot read this, Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So did you read Baal Judah and you're like, where are they going? What are they doing? Baal Judah is another, I couldn't even read it in the text. So you're like, yeah, I did have a little trouble with it. Um, Baal Judah is another name for Kiriath Jerem, which you may remember from 1 Samuel 7. That is where the ark ended up being left after it was brought back from Philistine capture. So it's been there ever since. It's just been sitting there sort of homeless, so to speak. And now we come to one of the most disturbing stories, I think we can say, in all of the Bible. Can I get a witness? Okay, so it says that they go to get the ark, and verse 3 says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So you and I are like, oh, that's so great. He's taking the ark back. Warning sign number one, the ark is on a cart. Who else put the ark on a cart? The Philistines. That's the way Philistines think you transport the ark of God. But you saw in your homework that they knew exactly how the ark was to be transported. They just had not followed the directions. But you're like, okay, but I mean, can't we show a little grace here? Now, keep in mind what's going on in this scene, why this scene is significant. The ark of God is understood to them to be the very presence of God among them. It's not just a piece of furniture that they're lugging around the country. And so we see David has been installed as king. We see Jerusalem, the holy city, has been established as the stronghold of Zion. What does it need? The presence of God dwelling in it. And that is what we should see here, is the very presence of God coming to dwell in the city of God with the son of Adam reigning on the throne, David. So what happens? Let's read it. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, which is what he had purchased, you may remember from earlier, it says, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the uh, oxen stumbled. Oh, that was really nice. Thanks, thanks, Uzzah. Thanks for looking out for the ark. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had what? Broken out against Uzzah. Do you see the connection? God is the God of breaking through, bursting through. 
And first, he breaks out against the Philistines who have no regard for his holiness. And second, he breaks out against Uzzah who does not regard his holiness as something to be taken with care. But we don't actually know that Uzzah understood what the rules were. But who should have understood what the rules were? David, right? And so when we see David was angry, did you read that? And were you kind of like, um, who's he angry at? Is he angry at God? Because at first it sounds like maybe he's angry at God. And then you're like, well, maybe he was angry at Uzzah because Uzzah didn't follow the rules. But what seems like the most likely object of David's anger? Himself. If we're going to take him at his word that he understands that God has brought him to this position and it's his job to shepherd the people of Israel, then he should be turning that anger toward himself because he did not take care to follow the Lord's commands. And Uzzah's life lays is, is, is what falls um, to the side because of it. Now, we read that and we're like, well, that, I feel super bad for Uzzah. So, yes, I feel that. But just remember that the consequence that Uzzah suffers is not one that we have to regard as an eternal punishment. It is a temporal punishment. If Uzzah has saving faith, then Uzzah is in the presence of the Lord as soon as he touches the ark and is struck down. We have no reason to think that what's happened here is he gets fried on the spot and is eternally damned. So um, for what that's worth, um, and you're like, that's not worth a whole lot. Well, just, okay. Uh, Sorry about that. One of the things about this passage that I think we have to come to terms with is how it testifies to the trustworthiness of the scriptures. Do you know why? So there's a famous saying, religion is the opiate of the masses or of the people. Have you ever heard that? You tell me how this is an opiate to me. You tell me how a passage like this makes me go, snuggly Abba Daddy God. Right? What are we seeing here? We are being reminded that we worship a God who transcends whose holiness is a non-negotiable. And I promise you this, human beings would never construct a God like this. If you and I were editing this text, we would have cut this story out because it's hard enough to discuss in a small group time and it's hard enough for me to stand up here and teach to you. We would just rather this part not be in here. But it is, and so we have to ask, what should we take from it? This is not a God who makes humans feel at ease. Okay, in fact, in verse 9, we find, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Can you imagine Obed-Edom just being like, I'm good. You just, I'm good. So I don't know how he drew the short straw. But what, what is David thinking? He's like, maybe, maybe all that comes from the ark is suffering. Maybe all that comes from the ark is destruction. And so he takes it over to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And then what happens? Verse 11, it says, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed him and all his household. 
And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So what does he do? He's like, okay, let's just put that over here for just a minute while I regroup. And what does he learn? He learns that God's intent is to bless through his presence, not destroy. God's intent is to bless and not to destroy, but he must be received on his terms, on his terms. And so we find the tension of joyful celebration and reverent awe, right? We're going to see David dance with abandon, where all the symbols and the castanets and all that are going to come back out, but they're going to come out with a new sense of this is the God with whom we have to do which takes me back in my head to Hebrews 12, which I mentioned earlier. You have not come to Mount Sinai that's cloaked in thunder and lightning into the voice of God speaking from the gloom so that you said, you go speak to him or we will die. No, you have come to Mount Zion and to angels and festal gathering and to the saints joyfully rejoicing there and to the mediator of a better covenant, a covenant that speaks a better word over the blood of Abel. But then how does Hebrews chapter 12 end? It says that we are to offer to God right reverent awe because our God is a consuming fire. So there we are on the other side of the cross, all the things that we're going to see hinted at today come to fulfillment. And we are still to understand as new covenant believers that the God who invites us in festal celebration to the foot of the heavenly Mount Zion also wants us to maintain that he is a consuming fire. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to walk in wisdom? Then you understand that the God who calls you into relationship is also the God who is a consuming fire. And then you obey him. You seek to obey him in all that you say and do, understanding that your approach to him matters. All right. Let's see how it goes with Ark coming to Jerusalem round two. Uh, Verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So the first time I read this, I was like, so every six steps, they'd like take six steps and they'd kill another. No, what's it saying? It's saying that on the first six steps that they take in their approach to Jerusalem, he offers this this offering. And so you can imagine like, can you imagine being those guys? Now they're doing it right this time. They've got the poles in and they've got the Kohathites carrying it. But still, wouldn't you be a little like, okay, steady as she goes, right? And so they offer this sacrifice. And then verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So we've seen this linen ephod crop up in other places in the text. And it's probably not the same as the ephod that the high priest would wear. It is meant to be this garment of celebration and recognition of who God is. So he's wearing the linen ephod, and it says, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And it's all going so great. And then we get to verse 16. It says, And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of who? 
Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she what? Despised him in her heart. So we're going to move on with the story before we circle back to her, but we're given this snapshot of her as the ark comes into the city. Why? A couple of things have been set up for us here linguistically that we want to pay attention to. I think I've been pretty clear, and Jenny touched on this last week, that I feel terrible for Michael. Michael is exhibit A of what happens to women in a system that is entirely controlled by men. What can happen, right? She's been used as a pawn. And when we first met Michael, do you know what the first description was of her that we saw in 1 Samuel? And Michael what? Love David. Like we don't hear that Abigail loved David. We don't hear that any of David's other wives loved David. But we do hear that Michael, the daughter of Saul, loved David. And so when we hear now that she despised him, we are to feel the tension between the Michael that he first met and the Michael who lives in his household now. And you can understand it, right? You can understand why she would despise him. She basically risks her life to save his life. He flees off into the night and she never hears from him again until the time that she is happily married to another man And she gets word that she's going to be taken into his household again. And her husband, we saw last week, follows after her weeping and is sent home. What has this woman's life been like? Probably found happiness. It's torn from her a second time. And now she's living in the house of David, but there are a few other wives and concubines there at this point. So what was the sole purpose of his bringing her into his house? Because she's Saul's daughter and she's a useful alliance. But whereas other places in the text she's been referred to simply as Michael, we're going to see her referred to three times in this passage, specifically as Michael, the daughter of Saul. Why? Because she's going to help us pull together a piece of the story that we've been tracking, and that is that the house of David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul, what? Grew weaker and weaker. And so here we see her representing this last vestige of the house of Saul. So while we may acknowledge that her motive or her feelings are justified, we also need to understand how she is being used in the story to make a point. This term despised is only used in two other places back in 1 Samuel, and it's used to refer to the sons of Eli and how they despised God. It's always used to reference those who were in opposition to the will of God. And so whatever we might credit for her reasons for feeling the bitterness she does toward David, we do need to understand that here she is set in opposition to the will of the Lord with the coming of the ark to Jerusalem. Okay, so she's in the window. It says she looks out, she sees him dancing, and she despised him in her heart. Verse 17, and they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. So he basically gives a feast 
to each household in Jerusalem. It doesn't sound particularly appetizing to you and me, but you have to think about how often meat might have been something that the average person got to enjoy in a meal. And you have to think raisins. I'm like, raisins, meh, take them or leave them. (laughs) Guys, that's nature's candy. Don't say that. Don't say that about nature's candy. Uh, Back in the day when you didn't have refined sugar, praise the Lord for refined sugar. No, don't. It's terrible. It's terrible. But when you didn't have it, this is where this was might have been the sweetest thing you ever ate. So there is the savory, there is the sweet, there's the daily bread. There's a lot of nice imagery going on here. David is having a good day. He blesses all the households of Israel, and then he goes to his own. And what happens? Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, but... You never want to see that word. Well, sometimes you do. There are some places in the New Testament where but is the good news, but God. Okay, uh, but here we see but Michael, but Michael, the daughter of Saul. There's reestablished the connection again. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She is dripping with sarcasm. Sarcasm, which, if you're paying attention, is always an expression of anger. So keep an eye on that yourself, my friends. And I will too. Chiefest of sinners. Verse 21, And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is another story I would like to not be in here. Can I just tell you? So what do we see here? We see David um, perhaps not being the gentlest in his rebuke, but again, what are we establishing here? We're establishing the relationship between the house of Saul and the house of David. And what does he do? He reiterates what he knows to be true. God has put me in this position. It is for the service of the people. And what I do today is setting an example for the people of how the Lord will be worshiped. And I will go even lower still. Saul sought to elevate himself. We saw Saul setting up a monument to himself back in 1 Samuel. Saul was about Saul. And so what we see here is David saying, I will not be like your father Saul. Why? Because your father Saul was a king like the nations. I will be the king of God's choosing insofar as I am able. Now, it says that she had no children to the day of her death. And we are not clear on whether this is because she was unable to have children or because David withheld that possibility from her. Um, Other places it will say, and the Lord closed her womb, and we don't see that here. So I would probably guess that it's because David refused to give her even that possibility from this point on. I don't love that. It makes David not a warm and loving person in my eyes, but what have we seen? This is consistent with the way that he has handled his relations with women, and his relations with women are going to continue to deteriorate as the book goes on. But the purposes of the Lord still work through 
whether these motives are pure or not. Why? Because the house of Saul is coming to an end. Okay, chapter 7. Man, we got to have time for chapter 7. Okay, it says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay, so first of all, this is the first time we've seen Nathan. Like you, you're like, oh yeah, 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 Nathan. That's because you know what's coming in the story. But this is the first time he's turned up for us. This is the prophets the Lord has given to David to help him. And you picture these two guys sitting around like having a cup of decaf one night on the patio of the cedar house. And David's like, I mean, I have all of this and God is just over here in this tent and that's not right. And Nathan's like, yeah, that, that, you're right. That does not sound awesome. And then Nathan goes home and uh, goes to bed, presumably. And it says in verse four, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now let's just stop here and make sure that we're following what's going on. First of all, David has connected his palace to his rule. He sees that the palace is an outward sign of his authority. And so what does he want? He wants the same thing for God, that there would be a visible outward sign of God's rule among the people of God, permanent, obvious. So his motive is not wrong. We're going to find out that actually it's his timing that is wrong. But how does God respond? Well, first he says, go and tell my servant David. And perhaps that didn't jump out at you the way that it might to the original audience. At this point, that term, my servant, has only been used by God to refer to three other people. Abraham, Moses, and Joshua. So what are we seeing? We're seeing the establishment of the significance of what is happening here. Abraham, Moses, and Joshua. And what does God say? In verse 9, he says, I have been with you wherever you went. And this is a beautiful reference pointing all the way back to 1 Samuel 16, one of the first mentions of David that we hear. So God says, I've been with you wherever you went. No house required. And what does 1 Samuel 16, 18 say? Listen to it. It says, this is when Saul is having his, his, his uh, mental probs. And, um, and they're looking for a solution to them. And verse 18 says, One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. All of his life, the Lord has been with David, and he's reminding him of that. I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. This is the thing that it took Jacob so long to figure out in the book of Genesis. He says, surely the Lord has been with me all of this time, and I did not know it. 
And God is saying, David, you know it. You know I've been with you. And then what does he say next? Second part of verse nine, he says, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So that may not have jumped out at you, but it would have jumped out to the original audience. Why? Because it is the language of the Abrahamic covenant. And what we will see here is this significant covenant, the Davidic covenant, which is the fifth covenant that we have encountered in the Old Testament. So first of all, this reference to make for you a great name, listen to Genesis 12, one through three. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So he's already called him David, my servant, to link him back to Abraham. And now he's using the same language to speak to him about the covenant he's going to make as he used in the Abrahamic covenant. So what are these five covenants? Can you name them? The first one is found in Genesis chapter 3, and it is called, for its location, the Edenic covenant, and that is the one where God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. What's the next one? Can you name it? It has to do with a big flood. The Noahic covenant. That's a term you use all the time. So it's the covenant with Noah, and it's in Genesis chapter 9, where God promises he will never again flood the earth. He will never again destroy every living thing. Rainbow in the sky. God makes his covenant. What's the third one? Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, the one that we were just reading a portion of, where God says that he will give them land, that he will bless Abraham and make his name great. It says, so that he will be a blessing. And then it says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later on, when he reiterates the covenant, he's going to tell Abraham, kings will come from you. Kings will come from you. So what are we going to see God do? He's going to be pointing toward how this covenant is a further expression of the Abrahamic covenant. But we, we've only mentioned three. We have Edenic, Noahic, and Abrahamic. And then there was that thunderous one at Mount Sinai, which is what? The Mosaic. Oh, you know that one. That's good. The Mosaic covenant. That's right, where the law is given to Israel, which is going to further define Israel's special relationship with God. This is what it means to be the children of God. And now we see in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, which will further outline for them the nature of how God will reign and rule. So uh, looking back at chapter 7, verse 9, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Then verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may what? Dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Oh, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Rest from enemies. And what do we call that? When you're able to subdue all of your enemies, you are exercising dominion. Okay, And so God is expressing this desire that he would dwell with his people, that they would have dominion over their enemies, that they would have rest from their enemies. And then what do we see next at the end of verse 11? It says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house 
when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, a dynasty. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who's he talking about here? Let's keep reading and then we'll figure it out. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, that's that Hebrew word hesed, my loving kindness, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In other words, the house of David will increase and the house of Saul will decrease. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, this is really important. So basically, God is saying through Nathan to David, oh yeah, there will be a house built, but not by you. It will be built by who? Your son. And who's going to build that house? Solomon. So we know there's an immediate fulfillment of this in the person of Solomon. And not only that, but then it says, this makes more sense of verse 14, because what do we want to do? We want to leap immediately to go, oh, we're talking about Jesus, right? Right? Because you're like, I get it. We're supposed to be looking for Jesus everywhere, right? Okay. But before you can do that, what does it say? It says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Well, that, that's not per se about Christ, who is the sinless savior, But what about the line of kings that is going to proceed from David with Solomon being the next one? Are they going to commit iniquity? (laughs) Oh, yes, they are. A lot of it. In fact, if you've ever read through 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, it's nuts out there. And do you know what Israel needs to know? My steadfast love will never depart from you. Because there will come a king who will sit on this throne, who will bear the rod of iniquity, having committed none. But it's going to get rocky. It's going to do this. It's not going to do this. And he says that this is a throne that we made sure forever before him. Luke 1, 30 through 33, a scene that you are probably familiar with because we were in the Advent season not long ago. Listen to the language. It says, and the angel said to her, Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because the Edenic covenant is being fulfilled. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. The Davidic covenant is significant to us because it speaks of God's faithfulness to place a king once and forever on the throne. That those who worship this king would have the dwelling place of God in them as the temple of God and that they would rule and subdue their enemies, sin and death. Verse 18, let's see how David feels about all of this. It says, the king, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 
And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Now, first of all, don't miss, David's first question is, who am I? And not only that, but what does he do? He's gone and he has sat. Like, is that interesting? Like, we don't find that people do this in the presence of the Lord. He goes and we presume that he goes into where the Ark of the Covenant is and he just kind of plunks down. I picture him sort of like wilted, just like, what is even happening? And then what does he do? He prays this prayer and he says, who am I that this should be something that I see come to pass? But then he asks a second question. It's not really in question form, but you can find it lurking there. Verse 22. So first he says, who am I? And next he's going to say, and who is like you? Verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. What has he just articulated? His acknowledgement of the first commandment in the Mosaic Covenant. You shall have. No other gods before me. And why is that command so important? Not because it prevents us from worshiping other things per se, but because it invites us into reality. There are no other gods. And what is David acknowledging here? I see that. There's no no one like you. There are no other gods. Then he's got a third question. So who am I? Who is like you? No one. And then verse 23. And who is like your people Israel? Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Do you hear that? False gods. You drove us out from there. One true God. Verse 24, and you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. Do you hear what David is praying? Hey, Lord, that thing you said you were going to do, do it. How often does that characterize our prayers? Because that's basically what we've got for the rest of this. He's saying, your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. David thinks it takes courage to say to God, who am I and who is like you and who is like your people? Lord, do what you said you will do. That feels like one of the least risky prayers I've ever heard. He says, and now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true in verse 28. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So God basically says to David, You think you have a house right now? You think you will build me a house? I'll tell you what, I will build you a house. I will build you a house. And listen, the house is still being built. 
because you and I, like living stones, are being built into this eternal house for the Lord. The real question that the children of God must learn to ask and that Israel is learning to ask is not who is against us, but rather who is among us? Because in these chapters, we see the very presence of God come to dwell. And look, it's perfect. The king is on the throne. The kingdom is established at Zion. And God is dwelling in the midst of his people. Who is among us is the question that matters for Israel. And for a split second, all is as it should be. Eden is restored. The king is on his throne and worshiped as he should be. And it lasts that long. Like what I want to say is don't turn the page. Don't turn the page. We waited a long time to get to this scene. But here's what we can carry with us. Because many of us are living right now in circumstances where we do not know whether the right question is who is against us or who is with us. And what God has promised to David and what is your promise as a child of that covenant is that he will not remove his steadfast love from you. Not ever. Not ever. And David prays in response to this what you and I are taught to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And let that be the prayer on our lips until we see the new Jerusalem descend, until we hear the shout go up and once again the cymbals and the tambourines and the castanets and every instrument and every voice can be raised and every limb can be thrown into dance before him. For our God is a consuming fire and he makes his dwelling place in our midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises to your children. We ask that you would teach them to us in our innermost being. Teach us to trust in your loving kindness even when the road is crooked and long. And Lord, bring your kingdom to be. Make us a house for you. We ask these things in the name of your Son who sits eternally on the throne of David. Amen.